As before I begin, shall we bow our heads in prayer? O Lord, have mercy on us, and through thy sovereign grace and power, through the power of the Holy Spirit, illumine our hearts and our minds, that the word of God may come alive in us, and that we not just be hearers of the word, but doers of your will. We ask this and pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Master. Amen. I've titled today's session, uh, The Power of God Released in and Through You. And so we're beginning in this uh, study of uh, Romans. Uh, I was uh, wrestling between whether I would speak from a passage from 2 Peter. Uh, and, and for those of you who are maybe visitors or, or not familiar, um, the middle of our bulletin, we actually have the sermon outline on the right of that outline. Uh, in the last week, we would have uh, completed reading of Second Peter going on into Romans 1, Romans 2. I wrestled whether to speak from Second uh, Peter uh, or to do Romans uh, because Second Peter touches on some s subjects relating to heresies and how people are um, laying people aside. And to my surprise, in Penang, there are actually quite a number of heresies and recently announcements about cults uh, in Penang. But I think if I were to do that as a pulpit item, it would take too much time. So instead, I, I'll do Romans. And Romans is a, it's a fascinating uh, letter by Paul to the Roman church, uh, and most likely written when he was imprisoned speaking very much about the theology and uh, the whole history about God. Now, his first point that he makes here is his desire. Uh, I need to actually move this forward. Okay, while that's moving forward, If you look at the front of your bulletin, you see this uh, particular caption, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, uh, it comes at a point in verse 16, 17, and 18, in, a, in particular, which actually uh, is the introduction and the summary of the whole letter. Uh, for those of you who, who actually do this uh, study of the book of Romans, um, the, the main point and the main theme of what Paul is writing to the church is the gospel as the power of God that brings salvation uh, to everyone, not just a certain group of people, to everyone who believes in it. Uh, and then in, in the actual text itself, first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. So the structure of what he's going to talk about is first to the Gentiles, uh, then to the Jews. Now, before that, he says, I am obligated, in verse 14, so if you have your Bibles open, it's good to, to check me. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. And the original Greek word that is used there is what we commonly translate as a debtor. 
I am a debtor or obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks. Now, why do you think Paul says, I am a debtor? Is it because he owes them money? Uh, that he, he owes them something? So let me ask you, uh, in your context and situation, when are you a debtor? Uh, it's okay, you know, you can use your brain and think a bit and can, can talk a little bit. When are you a debtor? And you owe money. Any other time when you're a debtor? Oh, yeah, when, when you, you give a favor to someone and you're indebted. Okay, so for the Greek people, there were two common ways in which you were obligated or a debtor. One is one which we are familiar with. You, you have a loan, you borrowed money, and someone has given you something, and therefore you are obligated. You have to repay this sum. But the other way is, if I give you a sum of money, which I say, this needs to be handed over to that person, you are also therefore now obligated because I've given you something which you now have a responsibility to pass on to the person whom I'm instructing you to. And in particular, if a patron or a master or a lord tells to the subject, he says, okay, I'm giving you uh, 10 talents, a huge amount of money, and this is to be distributed to the thing. He is indebted to the, to the king, not in his favor, but in order to fulfill that requirement to pass on. So this is what Paul means. He is obligated, indebted to God because God has given him an immeasurable, immeasurable power and treasure which he has then been commissioned to go and pass on. It's, he's been given this power which is to pass on. It is the power of salvation and, it, and that thing is essentially the gospel. Now, here's the thing. Once you receive this power, this treasure, this gospel, you also become indebted <laughs> because you are called to pass it on. Freely you have received, freely give. You cannot, in a way, receive this and say, okay, this is for me, my utang is only to God. <laughs> no, because he says to you, what you receive, pass on to others. And it is a wonderful gift. You know, sometimes uh, we go out and all my friends come to, to, to Penang, they say, hey, where's the best misiam, where's the best milaksa, all that. Uh, and I feel indebted to tell them what other people have told me. <laughs> you know, I say, okay, uh, according to so-and-so, this uh, you know, best, best chakwetiao here, but other people also say there. <laughs> and we go. I am passing it on. I'm indebted. So this power that has been given to me, which is a good thing. When you've been given a good thing, you now have the power to pass it on, especially if it frees them. Now, let's, let's look at how this power of God is being transmitted. One, this power of God is identified as the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So there is an effect on this. The effect is that it brings salvation to everyone who believes. Salvation is through belief or faith in the gospel. I want to make this clear. Salvation does not come by membership in a particular 
institution, whether it's a Methodist church or Catholic church or an Anglican and so forth. I recently sat down with someone who has been going around asking for help from many places. You know, and many of our friends in our community, they go and they become uh, Muslim, Buddhist, Christian, or whichever, based on whoever will help them. And they say, I will believe in whoever will help me survive. But then my question to this person is, what exactly do you believe in? Do you believe in God or the institution of religion? And he got stuck. Because when I ask him, what do you believe in? He says, well, you know, the Buddhists will do this and they've done this for me. The, the, the Methodists have done this for me. The Baptists have done this for me. The Catholics have done this for me. The mosque has done this for me. I said, those are, those are people. Are you saying you believe in people and the things that their religion tells them? That's very secondary. When I ask you, do you believe in God? And his answer is, I think there is a God. I know there is a God because I've survived all this while. So I said, if you know that there is a God, do you believe in God? And he says, that's where he got stuck. So my point for us to understand this is it is the power of God, the gospel that saves us, not the rituals, not the affiliation, not the, the, the badges that we wear to say, okay, I got baptized here, I was, you know. Those are kind of like secondary along the way. The primary thing that saves us is the gospel. But you might be asking, what is the gospel? Commonly, we would say the gospel is that uh, Jesus, uh, Son of God, was incarnated and came on earth. He lived a full life, showed us how to live. He was crucified, rejected, died on the cross, rose again on the third day. He lives and we follow him. That is the gospel. Now, Paul summarized it. And if you actually want a very short summary of what the gospel is, you might want to note this down. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 to 8. He says this, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 to 8. I receive, uh, for what I receive, I pass on to you as of first importance. So Paul says the most important thing, he immediately tells you, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, uh, I, uh, and then to the twelve, and after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, which means they have passed away. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. So this is Paul's gospel. And he says this gospel is the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who believes. And the gospel that Jesus gave is, repent, believe, the kingdom of God is at hand. That is essentially also the gospel, that the kingdom of God, Jesus, is available and at hand, that you can enter into the kingdom now. So it is our belief of that and what happens as a result of that, that brings salvation. 
not the religious rituals, not the symbolisms, not the affiliation, whatever membership that we think is there. It is more what we believe of that gospel. But the gospel also does something uh, amazing. And you, when you read commentaries about it, they spend a lot of time on verse 16, 17, 18. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God that is by faith. And then he concludes that particular statement in verse 17, the righteous will live by faith. Now that, that ought to mean something for you. Righteousness is not a result of what is visibly seen. Righteousness is by faith. Faith is a belief and a trust in things not seen. A person who is righteous lives his life according to what is not seen, which, which means to say what God has promised, what God says, that there is life after death, there is resurrection. That's not seen. Although we see Christ, or rather those who were apostles saw Christ, and they received the first sign of eternity, we don't. More, the majority of us don't. So we live by faith that what the Scriptures tell us is true or what we cannot see, that there is a t eternity, there is a kingdom of God. And so the righteous do what is right, not because the outcome is immediately seen, but because the, the Scriptures tell them that a supernatural God told them this is what is right, so do what is right. We live by faith, by what is not seen, the promise that is given to us rather than results the immediate results that we see. We trust the results to God. We live by this faith. So the first thing that this thing does is that this statement reveals the righteousness of God. And because of that, those who are righteous, those, you know, the ones that raise their hands, see Christ, and they see that God is good, that God is kind. But that righteousness also results in it uh, in verse 19, or rather 18. And the wrath of God is being revealed. So there's two revelations. That as a result of the gospel, one, the gospel is revealed as the righteousness of God, the, 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 the goodness and the kindness of God through the cross. But the flip side revelation is that it is also revealing the wrath of God. Now, I want to point out here that anger is not the same as wrath. Okay? Uh, we, we commonly think that uh, when a person is filled with wrath, he's very angry. Well, that's how the movies portray it. But wrath is not uh, the same as what we understand as an emotional reaction. The wrath is a necessary reaction of a holy God to sin. In the same way that we say that light right, rejects darkness. It obliterates darkness. There's no emotion, uh, no emotional, uh, you know, the light shines and it's going to destroy all the darkness. No, it's just that the nature of light is that it obliterates darkness. But we tend to think about obliteration as a very emotional response. No, the wrath of God is a necessary reaction of a holy God to things that corrupt sin. 
things that are not according to what God has designed it to be. So it's necessary, and we shouldn't look at it as God's emotional knee-jerk response. It is a necessary reaction. Uh, and when we read Romans 18 to 20, I read that out, uh, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So one of the things that we see uh, that is uh, a reaction to this is that there is a suppression of truth by their wickedness. Okay. Those who are godless, those who are filled with sin, they suppress the truth by their wickedness. And their wickedness is defined as their opposition uh, to God. And uh, Paul says they are without excuse. Okay, let me, let me finish reading that. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, uh, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Now, this text, right, verse 20, has been a core text which people use to say that people are without excuse. Whether or not you know God, whether or not you know Jesus, we are without excuse because there is general revelation. So for those who have actually attended our membership and baptism class, in our foundation manual, when we talk about God, how do we know God? We say there is general and there's specific revelation. General revelation means generally when you look at the world, when you go to the beach, when you look at the uh, universe and the cosmos, it does have to come to your mind. Is this all a random event over billions or hundreds or thousands of years, depending on which particular worldview you have? Or is God involved in it? Paul is saying that in man, when they see the complexity and the design and the order in which this world functions, they are without excuse when they say this is just the random probability chance of random atoms. This is how science interprets it now. That over billions and aeons and centuries, all that has happened now, all that humanity is, is random. Absolutely random which for them becomes very depressing because whether your life is good or whether your life is bad is random. There is no structure to this. Which for a person who says, I think there is a God, but I don't know, becomes no excuse for them because when they believe that there is a God, then they ought to be pursuing who is this God. Again, in my discussion with these friends, I said, what is the difference between, let's say, us and another group of people? How is it that uh, if you say that we believe that there is a God, you know, so some of our other faith systems here says, yeah, we believe that there is a God. The question is, which God? If you go to the West, the argument in philosophy is, is there a God? And they talk about, uh, you know, is it pantheism? Uh, is it uh, clockmaker God? All the different kinds of... And so their question is, is, does God really exist at all? 
If you come to the Asian side or Oriental side, the question is not, is there a God? The question is, which God? <laughs> but what differentiates us from others? Well, let me uh, highlight it this way. In the Muslim, Christian, and Jewish understanding of God, this God is an invisible God. He's a God that is not worshipped by representations or idols. He's a God that is invisible and almighty. He is the architect who orders things around. Many other religious systems, on the other hand, have representations of that God, and they create idols which they worship. Right? Now, although we say that, we also have many Christians, Muslims, and Jews who will worship idols of their own making. Money, wealth, power, control, popularity. What is an idol? An idol is a thing which gives you security, comfort, and assurance, and even love that is not of God. So when you place your reliance on money for your security instead of God, that's your idol. When you place your security on your title, your position, your reputation, and not on God, that's an idol. And so they are without excuse. If we believe that there is a God, even if it is an invisible God, an unknowing God, and then we create something else that is an image of our own making, we are without excuse. That's, Paul, that's how Paul is making this argument. And so the first revelation I mentioned was it reveals the, the, the power of the gospel is salvation and it reveals God's righteousness. But even as it reveals God's righteousness, it also reveals God's wrath against that unrighteousness. Okay? So in the nature of light, uh, light shows you things, but it also uh, brings judgment on darkness. Right? So the gospel brings what is true and right about God but the gospel also shows the evil of mankind, what is not true, a perversion of what God originally intended for. And so here is this uh, ongoing argument that, uh, that Paul is making. It's a rhetorical argument. He says he is obligated, okay, verse 14, he's obligated to proclaim the gospel. And the people in, in the form of rhetoric is why? He says, because I'm not ashamed. Why are you not ashamed? Because it is the power of God for salvation. Why is it the power of God for, God, uh, for salvation? Because it reveals God's righteousness. Why does it matter? Why does it matter that God's righteousness is revealed? Because it also reveals God's wrath. And how should we know? Uh, because His attributes are clearly understood we see God's attributes clearly displayed in this world. So, in a way, if you are a, if you're a person who is wrestling with whether there really is a God, the question is, 
Do you believe that there is a God? If you believe that there is a God, then do you not want to know who that God is? And if you want to know who that God is, shouldn't you then pursue to find out what is right, what is wrong? Uh, quite a few years back, I was going through counselling to a couple. Uh, one, of the, one of the couple was basically uh, originally a Christian, but had arrived a, a, at a time in their life where he had deconstructed his faith to a point where he said, I'm not sure, I don't know. And we arrived at this point in our discussion, in our conversation, and says, do you believe that there is a God? He says, I'm not sure. Are you interested to find out? And that's where the discussion stopped, or rather it stopped mentally for him. Because the answer that he gave was, I'm not sure, and at this point in time, I'm not interested to find out. In Sunday school, we tell the children, you know, the answer to every Sunday school question is Jesus. If Jesus is the answer, but what is the question? And for this young man who had arrived in life, he says, I'm quite okay with life. I don't really need God. I've got my career. I've got a lovely person I'm going to get married to. I've got my job. Maybe there is a God. Maybe there isn't. I'll just leave it for now. It's not really important. That was the crux of where he was at. But the issue is, if we believe that there is even a slight suspicion that there is a God, then you are compelled by reason to know who this is because this is the ultimate authority in all reality. And if he is the one who is the ultimate authority, he defines what reality is and what is right and what is true. But in the same way that he defines what is right and true, he's also defining what is evil and opposed. And if you're not bothered to find out and you are living in accordance to what you feel like doing, then the wrath of God is pending for you. Now I say this, and in, in, in our context, in our culture, we say the wrath of God and nobody blinks an eye. They say, yeah. Why? Because in our Chinese culture, Indian culture, Malay, or whichever culture, most of us believe in a form of hell. <laughs> I, I speak to a, a Chinese friend of mine, and he says, yeah, there are many thousand levels of hell. So the concept of hell is not an issue. But you try this in the Western world, that there is hell, there is wrath to be paid. And their answer is, how can there be a good God if he inflicts this kind of pain and suffering? Therefore, they don't believe that hell is a place, that there is wrath. They believe more that this is a concept and that this is just a rhetorical idea. Well, I leave it to you to decide. You read the text. It says there that the wrath of God is coming upon them. And it's not something that is happening after you die. It's happening even now. The things that happen in our world, in the brokenness of this world, is a revelation of God's judgment on the world because of sin. What then happens as a result of this? And I'd like to point out that this is a disastrous exchange of truth. Okay? You see, when, when the righteousness of God is revealed, and therefore also the wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness, there is a disastrous exchange. Uh, 
one, idolatry occurs. Because rather than worshipping the perfect God, they worship the created. <laughs> rather than worshipping the creator, they worship the created. Whether it is physical things or systems. Rather than following God's desires, they follow their sinful desires, the desires of their heart that lead them off into the darkness. Rather than doing what is norm, and we define this in Genesis chapter 2, that God created man and woman. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. That's normal, natural. But then we replace it with something else. We want something else. We want to have uh, sexual relationships outside of marriage. And I say, even in our churches, we have this ongoing struggle. Many of our friends, they are going on holidays together. They're not married. They may be office friends or they may like each other, but they go on holiday with each other and they end up being tempted and effectively, because all their friends are doing it, they think, ah, okay lah. I love this person, I'm going to get married to this person. But the truth of what scripture says is the sexual relationship is meant to be within the bounds of a marriage. Anything outside of that, you are walking into dark territory. It is not a matter of, of or, um, condemnation or judgment. It's almost like me telling, uh, telling my children, don't go into that dark alley, not because I want to control your life, but because going into that dark alley may result in you being robbed. It is out of love that we tell them about these things that are going into a grey, dark area. Shameful lust. And the definitions that we have here, these are some of the clear ones which we define as uh, the women exchanged what was natural for unnatural and the men lusted after each other. Now you will have uh, several uh, arguments throughout the world now. And in fact, even within the United Methodist Church in America, there's an ongoing huge debate that is dividing the Methodist Church in America. Incidentally, some people have asked me, are we, are we linked uh, to the UMC, US? Uh, yes, we are affiliated, but their decisions on theology do not affect us. We are what we call independent of them, but we're Methodists. And so that person heaved a sigh of relief. He says, okay. Because what's happening in the US now is that they have, uh, they have said that we can actually conduct same-sex marriages and they've also said that we can now conduct ordination of practicing homosexual pastors in a certain group in the US. And it's a huge thing because for them, it's all you need is love and acceptance. And this is how we practice this. So I don't have time in a, in a sermon like this to go down that path to explain. Maybe I might do this as a workshop or something if people say, yeah, I think we need to talk about this. But as far as our church is concerned, we have said it is scripturally inconsistent. We love those who are struggling with this, but we define it as a sin. Same-sex relationships uh, and also the, the marriages, same-sex marriages. And therefore, for that reason, we say because it is inconsistent with scripture, therefore, we cannot. 
We do not allow that to happen. Then we say there are, it, it kind of results in a depraved mind. Now, Paul orders it in such a way, right, that this is like it builds up. Okay, because of the idolatry, because God is not God, you are God because you decide what kind of God you want to serve, then the sinful desires come in. What I want becomes God's decree for me. And then, therefore, sexual immoral immorality increases. We give in to the shameful lust, and it results in depraved minds. Now, there's a way to kind of like summarize this from a structural point of what Paul is saying. If we know... Because he says, you know, in general revelation, that these Gentiles know that there is a God. If they know that there is a God, did they honor him? How do you honor God? You honor God by giving him weight. How do you honor your parents? You honor them by giving them weight. When I say this, I don't mean you feed them until they're heavy. <laughs> no. Giving them weight means uh, when they say something, their opinion means something for you and you take it seriously. And as far as possible, you follow, as long as it is not contrary to what uh, God tells you to do. So you listen to them, you give them weight, their words have weight and meaning for you. So did they honour him? Did they honour God? If they knew that there is a God, did they honour? And, and in the case of my friend who said, yeah, I think there is a God, but I'm not interested right now, maybe later. And I've heard this many times, men, women, young and old, they say, um, Ron, I want to enjoy myself at this point in time. And the Christian faith says, you know, cannot do this, cannot do that, you know, cannot drink, cannot party, cannot have relationships and jump into a bed with anyone. Outright, they say this. Because in their culture, it was such a case, it says, you know, before you get married, try lah. <laughs> after you get married, then you don't know, you know, after you cannot... <laughs> And so for them, they shut off that bit and says, okay, although God has said that, I, I, I don't really want to honour that. And so what then has happened is they become God or rather they make God in the image that they want to. So did they honour Him? And were they thankful? Some people are not. I've encountered so many, uh, a number of people in the brokenness of their mind and their emotion, they're not thankful. They want help they demand help and they say, if you're a Christian, you should be helping me. Your religion says this, this, this. And then you help them, they just take it and they go. One week later, they come back again and they ask for more. No hello, no thank you, no, I really appreciate this help. But sometimes that is a result of their broken nature. And so Paul is making this rhetorical argument. Knowing he was God, did they honour him and did they thank him? If they did, then yes, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for them. They listen to God, they honour him and they're responding with him to thankfulness and they're living their lives in accordance to his will. But if they're not, then they're deemed as foolish and futile. So I'm giving you in a summary of this in the first chapter, what Paul will then unpack for the entire book of, uh, of Romans. Okay. This is why in Proverbs you say, the fool says there is no God. <laughs> what then happens as a result of this? And I'm summarizing what he's saying here. There is a disastrous exchange 
when the gospel of salvation, which reveals God's righteousness, also reveals God's wrath, will basically divide the way we think. The first disastrous exchange, we say, is that we exchange the incorruptible creator for the corruptible world. We, we exchange what we want uh, for that. We exchange the truth of God, 100% truth of God for 100% lies, things that are not true. And we live in a world right now, especially for our young ones and our adults, in a postmodern world, in a post-Christian era, which says that what is true for you is true for you, what is true for me is not true for me. My friends, if you study logic and reason and philosophy, truth cannot stand in opposition of each other. They have to be logically consistent. So this relative idea of truth is basically another lie. Do we exchange the truth of God for the lies? Do we exchange the natural relationships, sexual relationships of God, male, female, with something else? And in all of this, right, it is a, a, a deterioration of what God has created as proper order. Okay? The proper order is that you should worship the real God, not the corruptible creation, that you should believe in the truth of God rather than the lies of this world, that you should uh, follow the natural relationships that God has created rather than the shameful lust that you have. And the last thing that breaks down is basically the truth of God's word against fallible, corrupt minds, the depraved mind. You see, when that happens, the person decides, whatever I want to do, I can justify myself. Same way when we do counselling for couples that are going through distress. Man comes up and says to me, I am divorcing my wife because I no longer love her. And I love somebody else. And if God has made it such that I love this other person, then it has to be God's will. Amazing, astounding logic. Then you show them God's will, marriage for eternity till death do you part. No, 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 no. My feelings. <laughs> God made me fall in love with this person. Therefore, I should love this person. I no longer have love. And it, it, it flips on both sides, huh? whether male or female. We exchange the lie. The righteous shall live by faith, and that faith is in the truth of what Scripture tells us is true, not based on the outcome of our feelings, not based on the outcome of how we think our lives are happier as a result of following what we want to do. We, in a way, have to trust in this faith to see us true. And those who have, have been blessed by that eternity. So then we are challenged with this, the propagation of the Christian truth versus our world culture. Are we continuing to do these practices and approving of those who practice them? Verse 32 says, uh, let me read verse 32. Although they know God's righteous decree, because the gospel has revealed to them what is God's righteousness and also the wrath of God on them, that those who do such things deserve death, the wrath of God, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So in our churches, sometimes you also have, no, 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 what they're doing is okay, we just accept them. 
Let's be united as a church. Love, acceptance means unity. And, and the, the African churches and the Asian churches says, it is better to be divided by the truth than to be united in an error or in, united in a lie. And the truth we say is the scripture is as it is. We interpret this way and therefore by faith we hold to this truth. I summarize again the, the error that is being defined not just by the Gentiles, by the Jews themselves, that the glory of the immortal God has been exchanged for the likeness of mortal beings. So the gods that are being created right now are made from things of this world or things that reflect the things of this world. You go to Orang Asli site, they say they worship the, the tiger, they worship the elephant, they, you know, they worship the tree. All this has spirit beings in them, so they worship that. Or the truth of God for a lie. What God says is true. They say, no, 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 my heart feels better and I, I, I want to go that way. Or natural sexual relations for what is unnatural. Now, this is not a, a condemnation about uh, homophobia or anything of that sort. We love them. We accept them. All of us have sinned, you know. Your, the homosexuality that a person is undergoing and is struggling against is the very same thing that we are struggling about, the lies, the hardness of heart, the lust that we go through. So don't make them, their sin, greater than yours. We love them, we accept them. But nowhere do we ever say that what you're doing is not sin. What we do as, a, as lying, as a selfish people is a sin what we do as those who are inclined to the unnatural and practicing Christian, practicing homosexuality is also a sin. Now, I want to make this point before people forget. There is a difference between the commission of the sin and the proclivity, the, the, the leaning. Okay? So a person may feel that they have homosexual lesbian tendencies but they are wrestling against it and they feel this is not right and I'm wrestling against it. That we commend. Much in the same way that every man and woman struggle in their minds with their tendency to sin. But nowhere can we say that if you continue to do this, you continuing to lie is acceptable. <laughs> continuing to practice and actually do what, is you, what you know in your heart is not right is never at the point that we say acceptable in the church. Let me close. How are we going to go forward in this? Remember, Paul is a debtor. He has received the power of the gospel that has liberated him from his shackles. In his previous life, he was condemning Christians. But after that, he was changed. It's like, you know... Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he comes to faith and he becomes a person who feels I'm indebted to God, to God because of the power that is given to me, which he now calls me to give to others. So are you, as a person, uh, working God's power in and through you? In other words, it's not just a debt you owe to God because he has given it to you but a debt that you pass on to others because he has commissioned you to share the gospel with others. It is the power of salvation. 
Friends, later on today, five, uh, today 5th of May, we have our Alpha Classic. And in the past few weeks, I've been challenging people. If you share the gospel, or even at the worst, you feel, I, I don't know how to share the gospel, have you invited them to come for Alpha? Remind yourself, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of salvation. And we have videos that demonstrate how because somebody just opened their mouth and said, yeah, we have Alpha going on. You can ask your questions there. It has changed so many lives, not just in Trinity, but in all the world. I've been uh, very blessed by seeing some elderly folks, right, come and say, I've been uh, a non-Christian for many years and in my 80s before I die, I've come for Alpha and I, I, I want to receive this. They, it doesn't mean that they live forever after that, you know, in the sense that they don't live on this earth forever. But in the passing, we've met people who have gone through stage 4 cancer. At the last moment, as a result of Alpha, they come to faith and they are at peace. And their family sees it and says, she's at peace. So, is it working in you, through you? Do you recognize this power of, the salva- of God's salvation, the gospel, to release you from your captivity and others? Are you taking sin too lightly? Do we kind of like ignore the wrath of God, just like my friends? Yeah, I know God says this, I know that there is a God, but I'm not too bothered to read my Bible, I'm not too bothered to do these spiritual disciplines, I'm not too bothered because I don't really need it, life is good enough. Are you taking the sin too lightly? If there is a light and you refuse to use this light because you say, I got enough light. Are you taking the wrath of God that is coming too lightly? And not just for yourself, but also for your friends. I really don't want to be the one that comes, you know, when, you, when people come and say, I wish I had, but it is now too late. We need to try. What is the truth that you are propagating are we standing together like the rest of them saying, uh, let them do what they want, it's okay, we just accept each other, love each other. Uh, don't be like what Paul says, you approve of those who practice these other things. We do need to say, as much as I love my fellow uh, humans who are practicing these things, I also am very clear in my position. It's love, but it is also telling people, you don't want to go down that path. I do not love a person when they are throwing themselves in front of a lorry and not do anything about this. If I really believe that the lorry is going to kill them, I would want to be pulling them back. But that's what we do when we say, okay, you do what you want. So we wrestle with that. They have their free will, but it's our responsibility to tell them there is a lorry coming. These practices that you are doing will destroy you. We're not going to say these practices, up to you, love. I don't have an opinion. We do. Friends, I leave that to you to consider. Let's bow our heads and commit what God has said to you and also come to this point of uh, communion uh, in the Holy Communion as we remember the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives. Let us pray. Dear Lord, I have fulfilled my debt and obligation to remind my brothers and sisters of your word. And so, Lord, will you 
go forth and speak into each and every heart of ours, Lord, that we would be changed, that we would not take our sin lightly, and that we would exercise this power that you have placed in us to be a blessing unto others. We ask this, O Lord, praying this in Jesus' name. Amen.